Well, good morning. Uh, a few quick things before we stand up and read God's word. Just a few quick um, congratulations. One to uh, Carrie and Tyler Waters. Uh, they had Mackenzie Joy a few weeks ago. And, huh? What's up? Carrie and Tyler. Carrie and Tyler had Beckett. My bad. I was going to share too. Carrie and Tyler had Beckett. They're not here, so if y'all see them, just tell them that they are here. Ah. <laughs> Beckett. Grateful for Beckett. Yeah, are y'all both here or just you, Tyler? Tell Carrie I said Mackenzie Joy. I would, or, tell Carrie I said Beckett. <laughs> Moving right along, Earl and Maya, Earl and Maya Mills had Mackenzie Joy. Uh, and I think this is the first week that Mike and Chrissy Davis are sitting here with us. So Mike and Chrissy got married two weeks ago, and yeah, so uh, y'all remember all of them in your prayers. Stand up, and let's read from <laughs> Psalms 4. Man. Psalm 4, starting in verse 1, it reads this. Answer me when I call, God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Oh, let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in our heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Let's pray. Father, it is you and you alone that is the source of our hope, our joy, our peace, all of the above, I pray that you would help us uh, experience the freedom that comes from trusting in you, Father. Would you remind us that when we don't pray, Father, it's not just that we're failing to do an obligation. It's not just that we're failing to do something that you called us to do. Would you remind us that when we fail to pray, we're forfeiting an outcome, Father, the promised peace that you provide. So even as we pray now before we enter into your word, I pray that you would give us a peace of heart, Father, a miraculous peace of heart, one that we need to be able to be calm and attentive right now as we hear from you, Father. And I pray as we hear from you that you would give us faith to believe that it's true. Help us to look to you. And as we look to you, Father, we pray that your face would shine on us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your seats. Grateful for Beckett. Glad he's here. Have you ever run out of gas while driving? I'm a responsible driver. I haven't, but I've heard it's embarrassing. 
Um, I heard it's frustrating. It's real frustrating because it's an easy problem to fix. It's fully preventable. Sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's the fault of the person that you loaned your car to, and they provide it with just enough gas for you to drive home and run out. Maybe you haven't felt it while you're driving an actual car, but I would imagine that all of us, as we've driven through life, know what it feels like to just run out of gas. Here's another question that may show where it is that we run out of gas, how that takes place. How's your prayer life? Do you feel like you've run out of gas there? So, I mean, I know in a room this size, there's some of us who uh, haven't run out of gas and our prayer life is great and it's through the roof and maybe you're here and your prayer life is something like Martin Luther's. Here's what he says about his prayer life. If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Maybe that's you. And if that's you, we are grateful that you're here and you're experiencing the joy that comes from prayer. Uh, But I would imagine that there are uh, not a few of us in here that don't think about that when we think about prayer. I would imagine there's more than a few of us in here that when it comes to prayer, we feel like our prayers have run out of gas and our prayer life is just empty. If that's you, I want to offer three maybe not so encouraging encouragements. Here's the first one. If that's you and you feel like your prayer life has run out of gas, you are not alone. If Google has taught me anything, it's taught me that you're never alone when you face a problem. Last week, I typed in struggling to pray into Google, and it came up with 40 million results. You're not alone. Here's two. Um, This probably won't be the last time that you struggle to pray. Uh, Struggling to pray is not like the chicken pox, right? It's not like rub a little calamine lotion of God's word on it. And you fix it and you never struggle again. Struggling to pray is more like the flu. There's a bunch of different things that can cause it. Sometimes our pain and our frustration with God causes us not to want to pray to him. Sometimes it's our prosperity. When we get everything that we want, it makes us start to forget God. You're not the only one. This won't be the last time. But here's the third one. There's hope. People much worse than you have started doing much better. Example, the disciples who on the eve of Christ's death, they bowed their heads and they closed their eyes. And when Jesus was done praying, they were snoring. But once they saw him get up from the dead, you read through the book of Acts and you see a group of people that never stopped praying. If you're here and you feel like I'm struggling and I just need some fuel then I just want you to know that there's hope. Regardless of where you are, if you pray all the time or you don't pray at all, I want to spend time and help you see how it is that you got there. You may have a prayer life that's through the roof, but you're not really sure how you got there. So if you stall out, you're not going to be sure how to start back up. 
So I just want to be sure that we're all on the same page so that we can experience the promised peace that comes through prayer. And I want to remind us of this. Listen, uh, prayer is not the end goal. Prayer is not a destination. Peace is. Prayer is the, the pathway. Right? So when it comes to the refreshment of the living water that is God's son, access to him, prayer is not the water. Prayer is the straw. So I just want to help us all be able to use the channel and the means better. So here's what I want to do. Psalm 3, we are Psalm 4. Uh, we're going to spend two weeks in the Psalms. Last week, Psalm 3, the main point that I was trying to get at is that faith sleeps. True faith in God has the ability to rest in the most troubling places. And the sentence that describes Psalm 3 is this. If your prayers reach God's ears, then you can fall asleep in his arms. Psalm 3 was designed to be a morning prayer, right? You were to pray this when you woke up. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer because it's one thing to know at the start of the day, right, if my prayers reach God's ears and I can fall asleep in his arms, good. But then what happens when you live through the day and you start to experience the frustrations that make prayer hard and you run out of gas? That's what Psalm 4 is. Psalm 4 is, is prayer's fuel. And so here's the first thing that I just want to help you see, and that is this. Frustrations fuel prayer. Frustrations fuel prayer. It's the things that go wrong, the things that we look at and say, how long things shouldn't be this way. Those things aren't meant to be roadblocks to keep us from praying to God. Those are to be the very things. That's the very fuel that we put in the gas tank that furthers our prayer down that pathway towards peace. Frustrations fuel prayer. And I want to show you how that plays out in Psalm 4. Uh, in Psalm 4, there's going to be three applications. There's three points, and I'm not going to wait till the end to give them to y'all. So if you have a pen, I've got three points when it comes to fueling our prayers. And those three things are this. We have to lean into God. That's verse 1. Verse 2 through 6 is we have to look up to God. Verse 7 and 8, we have to lean on God. Lean in, look up, lean on. Lean in, verse 1. Answer me when I call. God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Hard times, pending trouble, frustration, things that we know that are wrong. When life punches you in the face or when life starts to throw that swing, the first thing that you and I want to do is lean away, get away, back up. We want to forget things. But what you learn is that if you're fighting somebody, and again, I have to take this on somebody else's word. I haven't been in a fight since the sixth grade. But if you're fighting somebody, the best way to dodge a punch is not to lean back. If you try to lean away, you may dodge the first one, but you'll be off balance and you'll get hit by the next one. What boxers do when they want to dodge a punch is if a punch is thrown, they move, but they want to lean in. 
want to lean in because if you lean in, you can keep your balance and dodge the next one. As David finds himself here in this trial, here in this struggle, what he doesn't do, hear me, is just try to forget about his problems. And we do that all the time. We do that through avoidance. We do that through alcohol. We do that through drugs. We do that through sex. We do that through distracting ourselves with so many other things as if the solution to our frustrations is to forget about them and lean away. But the first thing that you see David doing is he leans in. He leans into God and asks God to lean back into him. Look at it. Twice in the first verse. Answer me when I call. God who vindicates me. You freed me from, you delivered me from past troubles. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He shows both his past grief and he shows his earnestness and that God's going to be the one that helps him. And I want you to see this. Look, it's, it's God's past faithfulness that's the basis of our present cries for future hope. What God has done in the past is supposed to be a trail of breadcrumbs for faith-starved souls. In other other, words, God has been too kind to you for you not to ask him to be more kind to you. Our education and manners has become a liability when it comes to prayers, right? Did you ever grow up and, you know, you go to somebody's house, and you're like, hey, can I have some juice from your fridge? And they say, yeah. You taste a bit of that juice, and you go back and say, can I have more? And they say, yeah. And you go back and you say, can I have more? And your mom comes and takes you by the ear and says, they've been too kind to you. Stop being greedy. Just be grateful for what you have. That's not what we're supposed to do with prayer. What God's saying is, no, 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 no. I've been kind to you so that you keep on asking. What David's saying is, God, you've been too kind for me, for me not to lean into you when trouble starts to come. You've been too kind to me for me not to come and ask you for things. If God has been good to you, You can never ask God to be too good to you. As good as God has been to you, he can always be better. Not in what he gives of himself, but in what you experience of him. Part of the purpose of past grace is to make you and I bold, not timid in what it is that we ask of God. Think of Abraham in Genesis where God says that he's going to bring judgment on the town that Abraham's nephew lives in. And so what he does is he starts praying. God, if there's 50 righteous people in this town, would you spare them? And God says, yes. And he's like, well, God, what if there's not 50? What if there's 45? And God says, yes. Well, God, forgive me for asking. What if there's not 45 but 30? And you see Abraham being timid and asking all of these things. And God quickly says, yes, yes. Yes, yes. And Abraham stops at 10 
I believe that the point of that text is if Abraham would have gotten down to one, God, would you save a whole town? If there is one righteous, God would have sent, he said yes. Because you know what God does in the salvation of the world? He saves the entire world. All those that will put their faith in him because of the righteousness of one man. Jesus, God, God's been too kind for you not to lean in when things go wrong. But in order for us to lean in, here's what we do. You have to remember how good God has been to you. And your amnesia will make you timid. And your amnesia, our amnesia, comes from our pride. Our pride will destroy us when it comes to taking our frustrations to God. Do you know why? Because we won't have a trail of breadcrumbs for our faith-starved soul. Because if we don't thank God, who do we attribute the deliverance of affliction from? Us. So we think that it was our resolve and grit that got us through our joblessness. We think that it was our wisdom and sensibilities that got us out of that relationship. We think that it was our strong faith that got us through the infertility and miscarriage. And we put all that strength in ourselves So then when frustrations come, we don't lean into God. We try to lean into ourselves, but it wasn't ourselves that got us through that last thing. So do you know how we build that? When those things come, we thank God for all of those things. We thank God for the way that he saved us. We thank God for the ways that he's sustained us. We thank God for the ways that he's daily fed us with the bread that we need, and we don't take it for granted and think that we got that by the work of our hands. God's been too good to you for you not to ask him to continue to be good. You've got to lean in. You've got to lean in towards God in the midst of your frustrations. And if you lean in, here's what I think that you'll find. I think that you'll find that facing God is the key to facing every problem. Facing God is going to be the key to facing every problem that you have, regardless of what it is. If point one was lean in, here's point two. Look up. Look up. It's helpful to think of yourself as a solar panel. Solar panels are these panels that generate electricity by facing upwards towards the sun. As they face upwards, they get the light and the heat that they need to generate electricity to warm and to cool a house. This is what David is going to do as he faces all of these frustrations. Look, frustration is going to come in all shapes and sizes, but notice his response to each one. David gets rejected. David is gripped with anger. David feels like he's in despair. But he does the same thing with each one. Look here at verse 2. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? So he looks at this group of people that are highly exalted or more highly exalted than he is, likely the people that unsat him from the throne that God placed him on. And he's saying, how long? There's this repeated rejection that he feels from a group of people. He feels rejected and dissed. How long am I going to be rejected? 
But then look at verse 3. Look at where he finds his acceptance. Verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. When experiencing earthly rejection, his solution is a heavenly acceptance. He looks up. Verse 4. Be angry and don't sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. He's angry and he feels it likely because of the rejection that he's faced. But what does he do? He offers sacrifice. He looks up. Verse 6, many are asking, who can show us anything good? So now what he's saying is, it's not just that people outside are rejecting him or that he feels angry on the inside, but he's even surrounded by his friends who take the weight of their despair and they lean all that weight on his shoulders. It's one thing for us to get tripped up by our own doubts of God's goodness. It's another thing for us to get tripped up even unintentionally by other folks' doubts of God's goodness. If you're walking down an aisle, intentional legs that are meant to trip you and unintentional legs that just find themselves in an aisle can't trip you. And so what he's saying is, faced with all of this despair, where's he going to look? What's he going to do? 6b, let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. Trouble comes, and David always looks up. The things that get us stuck, rejection, anger, and depression, all of those frustrations are meant to be fuel that you put in your tank so that as you face God, you'll have the boldness to face any of these problems. The things that everybody else in this world gets stuck on. We as Christians realize that those things, rejection, anger, depression, those things are inevitable. They're going to come. But they're invaluable. They're useful in turning our attention from the things around us that we look to for hope up to God. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Oh, you remember Back, uh, Back to the Future Part 2? Those of y'all that are, uh, yeah, that's a mixed bag. Back to the Future Part 2 was this movie about time travel. In Part 2, Dr. Brown came up with an idea so that his car would never run out of gas. He changed it to where the flux capacitor was fueled, not by gasoline, but by trash, because he knew, regardless of the time frame that I go to, everybody's going to throw out trash. And so what I am going to make sure is that regardless of where I am, my car can be fueled to get me where I need to go. This is what David does with his prayers. All the trash that we want to get past, what he's saying is these are actually things that fuel you and I to closeness with God. These three things may not be true of all of you, but I imagine there's something in here that's true of you. So let's just take anger. Verse 4, right? Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. 
offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. But what he's saying is that, and we've talked about this, anger is not a bad thing. Anger is a right and a good thing which should take place. For the rejection that he's felt, for the rejection that you and I feel that is unwarranted because of our faithfulness to, to God, you and I should be, should be angry. There is nothing spiritual about denying your humanity. There is nothing spiritual about being angry and saying, I'm not angry. When you deny anger, you are disrespecting the very image that you were created in. Anger is not a bad thing. There are reasons to be angry. John Chrysostom says it like this. The person that's angry without cause sins. But he who's not angry when there is cause also sins. Because he says it's this unreasonable patience towards worldly vices that incites or that sparks not just bad people to do bad, but good people to do bad because they feel defenseless. Anger is a good thing, and so he says here, look, be angry, but don't sin. At the end, he says this, on your bed, reflect in your heart, and be still. Is he saying, be angry, but don't sin? When you get mad, here's what you've got to do. Lay down on your bed and count to 10 and think things through. No, because he follows it up with verse 5. Look, things that are aimed in a Godward direction offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Or be about your religious duties or be about the things that God says to be about in his word. Even when you don't feel like it, trusting in the Lord. Look up. Or let me put it like this. Anger always incites a reflex. Anger always makes you do something about your anger. What do you do when you're angry? When you're mad, when, when you're angry, when you're depressed, when you feel rejected and worthless, what do you do about that? How do you respond? What do you look to for hope or for a resolution from those things? What do you trust in? Your anger shows what you trust in. What do you trust in? Here's a better question. Here's how you know what you trust in or who you trust in. Who do you talk to about your anger? Who do you talk to about your problems? That reveals who you trust in. Who do you talk at about your anger? Sometimes we get so offended by people and our anger starts to bubble up or boil up. And the very first thing that we do is we talk at the person that did us wrong. 
and our anger goes directly at somebody else, the person in question, the person that is the, the cause of our lack of peace. Why? Because we trust that if we can just get them to admit to their wrongs, that the world will be made right. But what if they never admit to their wrongs? Do you know what you're left with? Bitterness, resentment, more anger, lack of joy, lack of peace. That can be applied to your depression. That can be applied to your feelings of being rejected. What happens if the people that you want their acceptance so bad never give it to you? You have to look up. You have to look up. Here's what he's saying. Your frustrations, your anger, your resentment, your disappointment, none of those things should ever board a direct flight. All of them need to make a connection and stop through somewhere else. Atlanta's the busiest airport in the world. From here, you can get a direct flight pretty much anywhere. But what you'll find out is people that come from yeah, 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 smaller towns that don't have a Delta hub here. The airport doesn't have the capacity to get people to where they need to, to go. So if they try to take a direct flight from Billings, Montana to Johannesburg, they're going to run out of gas. Do you know what they have to do? Connect through Atlanta. They have to con connect through a place that has the capacity to get them there, transfer them, put them on the right place, and then send them on their way so that they'll get to, to their end goal. Your anger, if it takes off from you directly to the person that you're mad at, is only going to cause hurt, harm, and destruction for, for both you and them. So what you have to do is look up. Your anger is supposed to be rerouted through God. Whether it's frustration, whether it's hurt, whether it's anger, whether it's feelings of rejection, these horizontal problems will never be solved unless we lean into God and are reminded of his goodness and then look up to God and have those problems rerouted. Here's what you get when you look up to God. Hit the end of verse 6. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. What does that mean? The light of God's face. That's what's called um, anthropomorphic language. And all that that means is it gives human qualities to something that is not human. God is spirit. So what that means is God does not have a face like we do or eyes. God is a spirit. God doesn't have those body parts. So when it says the light of God's face shines down on us, what he's saying is that you know, as we look up towards God, what we don't get is a mad, angry God with the heat of his face beaming down on us. What he's saying is I look up towards God and what I get is a smiling God that shines down on what he's saying is, I find this, the solution to my problems being 
I give God my frustration, and what he does is he rains down and gives me his favor, his approval, his smile that empowers and moves his people. Let me put it like this. I think when frustrations come, you and I aren't accustomed to looking up at God. You and I are accustomed to ignoring God because we feel like he's the one that allowed this frustration to take place. I think you and I are accustomed to in shame like Adam hiding from God because we feel deep inside like we failed his standards as well as our own. I think you and I are accustomed to looking at others, thinking that if we can just get them to own up to their wrongs, that the world will be right. I think you and I are accustomed to looking around us for situations to change. And as we do all of that stuff, we're distracted and we're blinded from what it is that God wants to show us, his smiling face at us. If you think that I'm making too much of this point, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what Paul says about the difference between believers and unbelievers. Or Christians, those that have experienced the favor of God and those that look every and anywhere else for their joy. He says this, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. Look, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So here's what God did. For a group of people that find themselves struggling hard to pray, struggling hard to face our problems because we don't face God, because we're mad that he let them take place, because we're uh, shamed because of the things that we've done to try to forget about our problems that we know break God's heart, because we're trying to look every and, and, and anywhere for joy. God says, all right, if you won't look up, then I'll come down. And so what God does is he comes down in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And as Christ lives, he says, listen, for everybody that won't look up to God, now you can look eye to eye and see him. I'm going to come down to the realm of where we're all trying to find joy and peace. And Jesus is going to live this life and live in such a way to proclaim God's favor, not God's judgment. So throughout his life, what he's going to do is he's going to show that he's more powerful than sickness. He's more powerful than demons. He's more powerful than the weather. He's more powerful than opposition. He's more powerful than death. So that anybody who finds themselves facing any type of frustration doesn't have to look around them, but they can face God and look to him and look to see how Jesus took not just the frustrations of all of them and made something better, but Jesus took our sins that were aimed at him and made something 
better. This same God that did the impossible and caused light to shine out of darkness when he created the world, what Paul's saying is he's done the same thing in our hearts. He can. Do you feel yourself in a deep darkness that you feel like you just can't get out of? Lean in and look up. And as you look up to God in prayer, repenting for the fact that we put our trust in that guy, that girl, that job, that recognition, and say, Lord, your favor is the thing that means most to me that as we look up, what we'll do is we'll be like David and we'll see this smiling face shining down on us in the person of Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What he means is that I believe in God's favor. Not just because I read it in the Bible and I see that it's true, but as Jesus got up from the grave and proclaimed God's favor and kindness towards us, what he's saying is, I know that it's real by what I see everywhere else. That I'm confident that if God can bring the best forgiveness of our sins and peace with him out of the worst thing that took place, Jesus dying on the cross, if he could do it like that, then all these other small problems that we face are just that, small problems. Let me illustrate this from my own life. Um, for those of y'all that have been a part of the church for a long time, y'all know this. Uh, April 14th is a very hard day for me. Um, it's a hard day for me because four years ago, I was speaking at a conference, and I get out of the conference, and I go to dinner, and I get a phone call, um, and I find out that my older brother died suddenly. Hardest thing that ever took place. Worst day of my entire life by a mile. Nothing is a close second. It's one thing for verse 6 for a bunch of people around you to say, who can show us anything good? It's another thing to feel that in your own heart about God and just life. Who can show us anything good? Two years ago, my wife and I adopted our daughter. And it came around to be April the 14th. And April the 14th fell on Good Friday. So our daughter was born premature. She was on a breathing machine, had not taken an unassisted breath in her short life, and April the 14th rolls around, it's a Friday, and me and my wife are getting ready to head back here into town, and I wake up that morning just with tears in my eyes, heavy because of my brother and just the, the things that were still fresh, right? Grief doesn't have an expiration date, it's still fresh. And so I'm sitting in the NICU, I'm holding my daughter on my chest, she's hooked up to the breathing machine, I'm reading her the chapter in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God About Adoption and How God Has Adopted Us. And it's Good Friday, and I'm just reminded of Good Friday was the day that Christ took his last breaths here on 
earth, and it's the 14th, and my brother took his last breath on those days, and I'm just bawling and crying because I'm reminded that Christ took his last breath in the broken, frail body that he had. But three days later, he breathed again as he rose from the dead. And I was reminded that one day that my brother would breathe uh, again, that right now he's living with God. And so I'm overwhelmed with just sadness and joy. And then the doctor comes in, looks at my daughter and says, I think today's the day that she's going to breathe on her own. And he comes and takes her out of my arms. And before I know it, he comes back and the breathing machine is out of her nose and she's breathing. And I'm this mess. I'm just crying and snotting. It's like she's breathing. And then folks ask me what's wrong. And I'm like breathing like breath. Right? And so it's just a, but it's just what the light of the goodness of God does. Listen, is it turns all the other things that are earthly joys into reflections of God. And it points us upward, even with the earthly joy. So now it's not just that my daughter breathed. It's, oh, my daughter breathed, but that reminded me of my brother that took his last breath. Oh, but that reminded me of my Savior that took his last breath, but they weren't his last breaths. And it reminded me that death, death was nothing to Jesus. And my heart is overflowing with joy to God. And as my heart is overflowing with joy to God, I'm reminded of the afflictions that he's saved me from. As I'm reminded of the afflictions that he saved me from, I'm filled with boldness to continue to ask him to be more good. Our frustrations are fuels for our prayer. When we face God and look up and see a smiling God that looks down on us because of what his son does, we can face any and every problem. It's not a sickness. There's not a circumstance. There's not a situation. There's not a relational conflict. There is nothing that's impossible, and that's been seen in what God has done. And when that's the case, when you lean in and then you look up and, and you see God looking down with his smile and his favor, do you know what you can do? You can lean on God. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord. Make me live in safety. What he says is I look around and everybody's got a bunch of grain and a bunch of wine and they look like they're happy, but those are all things that can be consumed. And the more they consume of it, the more quickly it'll be completely consumed. But what he's saying, but because of what God has done, there's a joy in me that dwarfs any joy that's around me. Now I can lean on him. He says, yo, I can fall asleep in peace because it's God and God alone that keeps me safe. Not a circumstance, not another person giving me the value that I think that I need. Not even a conflict being resolved, but the fact that the ultimate conflict between me and God has been resolved because of his son. And now I live as somebody that's eager to lean on God. We spent these last two weeks just trying to talk about prayer. And I hope that you've seen in 
both of these things, that when God is trying to incite you and I to pray, he's never going to push us to pray. So he's not going to like prod us and poke us with guilt and say, you should pray more. He's always going to pull us and invite us with the promised peace that we see here. Have you ever tried to go through a door that says pull by pushing? It's embarrassing. And you may make your way through that door eventually, but you'll completely break down the door. But if you pull, it's easy. It comes out, this is what God does. He invites you and I to lean into him. He's been too good for you not to. To look up to him. He has done the impossible. Ephesians 3, right, when it talks about prayer, what Paul's going to say is God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than you can ask or think. How do you know? Because he's already done it. Who would have thought to ask God to send his perfect son and have him die in our place? He's done it to show you that you can't ask, you can't out-ask God. So ask, so pray, and we lean on him. I may have started this off by asking the wrong question. I asked, how's your prayer life? And sometimes that guilt can kind of set in because we feel that a good prayer life is the goal. But remember, it's not the goal. It's the pathway, the vehicle, the straw. When we don't pray, we're not failing to do some obligation of which God is sitting in the sky and he's got a scorecard for you for the days that you prayed and the days that you didn't. When we fail to pray, all that we're doing is forfeiting an outcome. And that outcome is the promised peace that comes from taking our frustrations and rerouting them to a God who wants to look down and smile on his children. That's the invitation I have for you. Lean in. Look up. And then lean on it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you give us grace to be those that don't just hear your word, but do it. And as we do it, I pray that you would increase our confidence in your ability to do the impossible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.